So today we are continuing our series on the church, uh, as the church, and we have a, an exciting topic, uh, a very complex topic, but I think a very, very interesting topic, which is the church in Africa. Um, there we go, Sefi's got my slides, thanks Sefi. So, I mean, the history of the church in Africa, the current state of the church in Africa, all these things are... It's, like, it's a very crazily multifaceted, complex issue. Um, and I'm going to try and cover it in one 20-minute sermon. So uh, I was joking with, with Davida earlier that you know, we could do a two-year series on, on this topic, but probably Bevan would like uh, to be consulted before I just took over for the next two years. Um, so, so we're going to have some broad strokes. We're going to have some important things sort of treated very briefly, but... Uh, that's kind of the way it has to be. So we're going to get a bit of an overview of, of the history of the church in Africa, and we're going to look into some of the more important things about the current church in Africa uh, and, and how that works. So let's get started. And we're going to start with a discussion around the idea of narrative. And when I first saw this topic of the church in Africa, um, the thing that really came to mind was this idea of narrative. Because in all things in life, everything is based on our context. Our understanding of things is based on where we come from and the place where we are in. And the church is no different. Our understanding of the church is understood in our narrative, understood in our context. And so we're going to go to an example to illustrate this idea of, uh, of narrative. And being a, a maths person, we're getting a maths example. So... Grant, we thought you were escaping for the evening. Gotcha. Um, so let's, let's start with this. Let's say you're in university. You walk into your accounting class, and you're given this income statement for, what is it, Lizelle Lizard's House of Hipsterism. And you're given this, uh, this balance sheet, or this income statement, and you're told that you have profit from sale of launched sun-dried aubergines, one rand, and profit from sale of desiccated walnuts, one rand. If you were to ask to total that, you'd say immediately, two rand, of course. If you're an accountant, you'd sign this off, no problem. Here, one plus one equals two. Done. No question. It's just true. Then, however, you go to your next lecture. Now you are in Herr Professor Wizard Lizard's class. And he gives you this question and says, okay, so prove one plus one equals two. Being a diligent student, you pull out your search engine, I mean your textbook, uh, and you look up the proof. And you start going through the proof, and you find, okay, so we have, to, we have to start these piano axioms. You don't have to worry about what they are. But the point is, when you start reading about the proof, you say, okay, it's not just a fact. It's not something which is just globally true. This is actually based on some axioms, some assumptions. We can only say 1 plus 1 equals 2 if we make these assumptions about how maths works. They can go to the next slide just for the completeness. This is a very abridged version of the proof, but uh, don't worry about it. It's just there to give you something to look at. Um, the point being, in that maths context, as soon as you walk into that maths lecture theater, the assumptions are different. In that narrative, 1 plus 1 equals 2 is not an obvious fact. If I would have stood up in front of one of my maths lectures and said, why is 1 plus 1 equals 2? It simply is. It's obvious. He would have said, mm-hmm, not out of 10. Um, Whereas in the counting, you don't really care about the proof. You know 1 plus 1 equals 2. That's fine. 
done. In that context, in that narrative, it's a fact. And again, I mean, apart from being a particularly interesting fact, especially when people try and argue sort of hyper-rational universe worldviews, it's quite interesting to think about the fact that even mathematics, which we think about as such a like, basic, fundamental, rational, logical process, is still based on axioms. Like, it's, it's quite crazy. So if anyone ever says that they can prove everything from first principles, uh, just ask them to prove that 1 plus 1 equals 2 with no assumptions. Uh, yeah. And they will inevitably fail. So the bottom line is we have to keep in mind our context and our narrative, especially now when we're coming to the topic of the church. And so when we talk about the church in Africa, we need to bear in mind the different narratives in play. And in particular, there's a narrative that Christianity is a Western religion. It's the religion of the West and of Europe. And so today we're going to challenge that narrative, and we're going to consider how else we can think of the church in Africa. So, some history. Uh, we run out of slides, so you can either go back to the first slide or just kill it. Maybe having a map of Africa is nice. Um, so we can put some things in perspective. So, the early history of the church in Africa. The church is very definitely not new to Africa. Um, uh, the head of the church spent the first couple of years of his life in Africa. Um, you know, Jesus was in Egypt for two years. Um, and that's, that's where the, the church, you know, sort of began its, its journey to, to the way it is now. Um, and it's a very s small point in some sense, but very profound in others, that Jesus spent the beginning years of his life in Africa. And so, on from that, we can move on to like a, a very, very, very brief and rushed history of the early church in North Africa. And there's so much interesting stuff that I want to add, but we're just going to stick to the basics. And so this is largely based on, uh, on the writing of Elias Bongba, a, a theologian and a historian. And so we're going to start at the very beginning. And the gospel was spread. Um, from Pentecost, we know that the gospel was spread uh, throughout the known world very quickly. And, of course, Jesus had his, his great uh, commission, sending the disciples out to the whole world. Um, in the aftermath, aftermath, yeah, words, aftermath of Pentecost, the church spread throughout Judea and as well as parts of North Africa and the surrounding regions, like in all directions from Judea. And in Acts 2, verses 9 to 11, which Josh preached on last week, we are given this list of people or groups of people who are present at Pentecost. And of course, there were the Jews and so on and so on. There were also people from Egypt and people from Cyrene. Egypt, of course, is in Africa. We know that. And Cyrene is a city or was a city in Libya, which is also in North Africa. And so we have Africans present at Pentecost, which is, you know, one of the massive flames of the beginning of the church. This is also not the first time we hear about Cyrene. Uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, we hear about Simon the Cyrene carrying Jesus' cross to Golgotha. So, just another callback. So many interesting things here, but basically, the essence of this is that Africa and Africans have been present throughout the story of the beginning of the church. We also then read in, in, later on in Acts about Philip and his witness to the treasure of the Kandake in Ethiopia. Uh, and 
how he meets this, this eunuch and explains the passage of Isaiah and explains the whole gospel to him and baptizes him. And then, of course, disappears and carries on his witness elsewhere. Philip is the most efficient evangelist ever. Like, imagine, just like, cool, baptism done. Okay, I don't know what happens to discipleship, but we'll discuss that another time. Uh, I know Josh would disagree with that form of evangelism. Uh, and it's then believed that Mark the Evangelist established the church in, in Egypt, in Alexandria, around 60 AD, depending, it's not exactly known. And Alexandria... City? Is the microphone still on? Cool. Alexandria was a very significant city in the ancient world. It was a center of learning. It was a very cosmopolitan city which had Greeks and Jews and Romans and people from all over Northern Africa who congregated there uh, at the centers of learning. And so following the sort of founding of the church there, Alexandria also grew up to be a city with great church Christian learning centers, and a lot of theology was developed there, which we'll discuss in a minute. In fact, you might have encountered in your Bibles, when you're reading the footnotes, it sometimes mentions, you know, in other translations, it's like this, or in the Septuagint, it's like this. And that Septuagint, however you pronounce the word, is the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And that translation happened at Alexandria in Africa. And Christianity also spread very fast to Libya, which is where Cyrene is, uh, elsewhere in Eritrea, in Nubia, and basically all over the North African sort of region. And they established a very firm foothold in that region. And so we have these communities of believers from the very beginning of the church, from the very earliest days of the existence of the church. We have the church in Africa. And the other really important part that I want to highlight about this North African contribution is the theological contribution of the North Africans to all of theology, to our modern understanding and to the ancient understanding of, of Christianity. And so we have a handful of really key figures in the Alexandrian and North African teachings. For instance, Clement of Alexandria was a leader in this process of philosophical theology, and he wrote a lot that dealt with the Greek beliefs, the Greek pantheism, and all these beliefs at the time, and he challenged these beliefs and argued for the merit of Christianity as a rational philosophical belief. And so many of us now, for me, I'm in science at UCT, and there's always this ongoing thing of, is Christianity a rational faith? And it's been being argued for 2,000 years, apparently, so... Uh, it's quite interesting for me to see that even back then, the earliest apologists were writing about this. Another example was Tertullian, a prolific writer, and he also argued against various detractors of the faith. He was quite the apologist, kind of giving good arguments for Christ and his teachings and for the reasons for believing in Christianity and the church. Another Carthaginian, Carthage being a city in modern Tunisia, um, North Africa, was Cyprian. And we have St. Cyprian's school uh, here in Cape Town. But Cyprian was a very pastoral teacher, and he wrote a lot about his pastoral experience as a, a member of the church. And so we have a lot of writings from him with dealt with theological as well as these pastoral issues, which influenced a lot of theology. And possibly the most famous is, is Augustine of Hippo. Um, St. Augustine's Confessions, um, all these theological ideas that St. Augustine came up with 
um, his work on the Trinity, his work on sin and original sin and grace. And basically, he discussed a whole lot of stuff Christ-related. And all of these beliefs, all of these things that he learned and developed, went across the world. And especially, they went to Europe through Rome. So, what's kind of interesting is that European theology, European Christianity, was based on African theology. The theology developed by the North African thinkers was extremely influential in setting up the beliefs in Europe. So that's kind of where it started. And the Romans, of course, spread Christianity in their various ways. Missionaries and evangelists spread uh, Christianity through Europe and elsewhere. But that's kind of the situation. And until the 7th century, when the Arab invasions forced Islam on most of the North African population, we had these very flourishing churches, ups and downs. You can read about all the the second century drama of uh, heresy and correctness and figuring out what was right. But essentially, these churches persisted until this time when they were conquered by, by the Arabs and Islam forced upon them. But the Egyptian uh, Coptic Church and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church still persist to this day. Ethiopia is a fascinating country. It's one of the few countries that wasn't colonized. I think maybe the only country in Africa which was never colonized. And it was one of the only North African countries that resisted the uh, Arab invasion. So between the mountains and the people there, like Ethiopia is a tough place. Um, but I mean, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has remained for 2,000 years, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, I have a, a friend in my, my research group at UCT who is a, an, an Ethiopian Orthodox. And it's just crazy to think that this tradition has persisted for 2,000 years. But yeah, anyway, we're already running out of time. This is going to be interesting. But the point of all this is it's like a, a lightning review of several hundred years of North African church history. And the essence of it is that Theology was developed in North Africa. The church was developed in North Africa. And so let's think about our narrative of the church in Africa. This definitely challenges our thinking of where does Christianity originate from. It originates, obviously, from Christ in Judea, but the teachings came from all over Africa and Mesopotamia. So, moving further south and jumping a thousand years forward, uh, we're coming to South Africa. And now we get into a, a more complex sequence of events where in the 15th century we have Portuguese uh, explorers coming to West Africa, uh, touching down South Africa. But the Portuguese explorers never really did much in Southern Africa. Uh, they sort of popped by as the Bartholomew Diaz cross and so on. And there's some commemoration, but they didn't do too much. Um, and then the Dutch settlers arrived in the 17th century, set up their trading things, some German settlers, the French Huguenots fleeing persecution. Um, but these groups at first weren't really into evangelism, they weren't that much into mission, uh, but that came in, in due course in the sort of 18th century generally. And then these missionaries went out. And it's important to remember that these missionaries didn't go out into a religious vacuum. They went out among African people with firmly held beliefs, with an existing, very strong spirituality. Uh, and this 
really shapes the whole narrative of modern African theology. And this, again, way too much to talk about, but we'll get there. We'll discuss some of it now. And so these, these uh, settler churches developed. They had some, uh, some missionaries. They had some, some services. And eventually they started having to deal with the tension created by essentially racist members of these, these white uh, congregations. And so we have these early decrees of the Dutch Reformed Church, which was sort of the for a long time, the only allowed religion in, in the region. Um, and the early decrees, which in principle supported equality, they looked at the Bible, and then the Bible says that you know, Jesus died for all people, you know, so the enslaved were free, all people are equal. And, they, and they, they put this in their sort of statement, so to say, of beliefs, and it's there as like a biblical ideal. But then they sort of add this uh, thing on the side, which sort of says, we'll make exceptions uh, to account for these uh, weak members of our congregation who don't want to mix races, i.e. they would make allowances for racists, um, which was what happened at the time. Like, it is what it is. It's kind of scary to see the development from this 1865 conference where they said, in principle, equality is good, but they allowed this exception. And over the next 80 years, how that small exception, they said, but... And then that suddenly, it just snowballed, and I could just look at the development, and it's really terrifying to think how people gave into the fear, and these, the Dutch Reformed sort of conferences which they had marched inexorably towards justifying segregation. And so then by the time they got to 1942, their statement was that for, it's better for everyone for us to be culturally segregated, racially segregated. And it's like astonishing to think that they genuinely were willing to put this on paper. Like, they got to this point by this sort of iteration and this echo chamber of what they thought was okay. And, like, it's just, yeah, it's scary. And in 1948, uh, as we probably know, the National Party came to power, and they turned these uh, the existing segregation laws, they you know, escalated them and formalized it and started what we know as apartheid. And this, this is a painful part of, of a lot of church history in South Africa. Like, the fact that apartheid was, was justified morally on these, these findings of church members and church leaders. And whatever the original motivations, the church was used as a tool for oppression. The church was used by people to justify evil acts. And this is something which we really, as humans, we need to internalize and learn from. It's something which we need to realize that the church is a good thing. The church is the body of Christ. But if we kind of create it as a structure, the sort of thing which we can do with what we want, it's very dangerous because then we can just abuse it and people will use anything they can... You know, if you're looking for power, if you're afraid you will use what you have at your disposal and we need to remember as a church what went wrong and make sure never to repeat those evils and never to go down that slippery slope that they went down in the 19th century. Yes. The only story of the church, though. There is a massive narrative of resistance theology, of people who stood up, Christians who stood up against apartheid. And 
a large part of what brought down apartheid were these Christians. Robert Sibukwe, we have a road named for him here, Methodist lay preacher who started the Pan-African Movement, the Pan-African Council, which played a humongous role in tearing down the injustices of apartheid. Desmond Tutu, Nobel Peace Prize in 1984, played an incredible role in bringing out a peaceful resolution of bringing down the walls of apartheid. There are also people like Peter Story, a white uh, church leader, and there were plenty like him who stood up against this and said, this is wrong. It was not a complete silence on the part of the church. And so this is again the picture of the question of narrative. We need to remember that there are both sides, but the church did stand up. And so something that's very important to take away from this is that the church led by Africans, like Sabukwe, like Tutu, and so on, was a powerful element of change. The church, African church, led by Africans. And this is what has led to a lot of change of thinking, a lot of like, theological development in this bringing together of separately developed theologies, the development of African theology in Africa, modern African theology, has been a massive part of reshaping thinking throughout the world, but obviously most strongly here in Africa. And so I would say as a result of all of this, the lasting narrative of the church in Africa is not that of oppression, but it's a narrative of, of growth and a narrative of justice and truth. But let's take a quick look at modern African church, where we are now. Because I mentioned earlier that you know, we didn't have, there was no spiritual religious vacuum in Africa. Uh, we've had these cultures of very complex pre-existing religious beliefs. And so this has created tension, good and bad, uh, with the spread of the gospel. The gospel comes, and the gospel makes a lot of sense in that it's not... Many missionaries would try and force it as a complete like, cut, like you must turn back on, on everything. But a lot of people suddenly realized that actually Christ makes a lot of sense in the African understanding. And so they developed this African theology and it fit in with the culture. And there's a, a quote by, by John Beatty, who is considered to be the, the father of African theology, African philosophical theology, uh, a Kenyan incredible thinker. And he said, he said this, We can add nothing to the gospel, for this is an eternal gift of God. But Christianity is always a beggar seeking food and drink, cover and shelter from the cultures and times it encounters. Forms of worship, ways of fellowshipping, and methods of teaching vary from culture to culture. And so, there's this idea that Christ is central to everything. Christ never changes. The gospel of Christ never changes. But in each culture, in each place, the manifestation of that church looks different. And I have had the, the privilege of attending, I was trying to count earlier today how many churches... Uh, I've attended, and I got to like 30, and I couldn't remember anymore, but like, 
uh, because my mother is in the ministry, uh, we, we spent a lot of time going around. So we, we started in Joburg, we went to a bunch of churches in Joburg, to Grahamstown, to Peter Maritzburg, to Mitchell's Plain, and then to Paro. And so it's just such an education to see how worship happens, how teaching happens, how fellowship happens in all these different cultures. You know, the different church services, how they look, like the African singing, uh, singing traditions. It's an incredible thing to be part of. The different languages that are used, the, the fellowship. Um, I grew up in the Methodist church, and it was always said that it wasn't a Methodist event if there wasn't food. And there's this culture of, you know, these gatherings with food. And it's just such a great way of fellowshipping. And, I mean, it's, it's kind of incredible to think that we're all serving the same God. We all share the same beliefs. And in these completely different contexts, in these completely different cultures and languages and ways of living, the gospel is still supreme, the gospel is still preached, the gospel is still at home. And this is what this, this quote of Mbiti is saying, that we can't add anything to the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, the truth of God. But it always comes into the culture, comes into the space. Yeah, I still remember um, going to a Sunday school in Lanseria before it was so developed with the, the airport and everything. And it's just, it's so special to be part of this like, incredibly multicultural group that were just sitting there learning about, about Jesus in these different ways and people talking in different languages and explaining to each other in different languages and discussing. And I, and I still remember, I have a Bible where the, two of the pages in Ezekiel are just completely unusable because it got dropped in the, the burnt field that we were meeting on. And so you have all these uh, ash scars on the, the pages. And it's actually... It's just such a reminder of the different places and the different ways that we do church in Africa. And so, so where does that leave us? It leaves us with a very complex narrative of the church in Africa. It leaves us, it certainly <laughs> leaves me with my, my head filled with all sorts of interesting ideas, new ideas and old ideas rediscovered. Um, I, I spent way too much time reading uh, about the history of the church and the, the sort of the way that the churches existed um, in Africa. Thanks, Bevan, for <laughs> providing material. Um, but I think my takeaway is that the narrative of the church is and will always be a Christ-driven one. The story of the world, the story of the church is going to be centered around Christ and grace. The story of Africa and the church in Africa is going to be centered around Christ. Our viewpoint needs to be oriented around that, by the life and the ministry of the person Jesus. And this comes back to the early point, that Jesus is not a Western figure. He is a Jewish man raised early on in Africa and should come as little surprise that the teachings of Christ fit naturally into African culture and tradition. And so Christianity was not a cancer that was brought in by Europeans to force colonization on the mind. 
for sure it was used by some for very bad reasons. There were missionaries who had no spiritual uh, aim other than subjugating the people. But Christianity is a belief that belongs here in Africa in a unique and African way. And our narrative is ever-changing and unique. And each of us here in Africa experiences an African church experience. Let's remember that. And just as Jesus called the apostles to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, and all have been forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice in Romans 5.18, let us live as African disciples. Let us live as the church in Africa, centered around Christ in our own African context.